Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Powerchair Football Podcast Two on One. Uh, eagerly awaited, I'm sure, and it's uh, come a few days after the opening weekend of the Premiership with lots of talking points, uh, lots to discuss, and lots of things to look at. I'm delighted to be welcomed by Mr. Ryan Sipple once again, uh, and I'll let him introduce our guest for this episode. Yeah, for this episode, we focus, as Alex just said, on our National League, where we're going to recap, review and discuss the action from game week one of the 2023-24 PTC Therapeutics Premiership, where we'll talk about significant moments, events, transfers, results and much more. And to help us with that very task, we're delighted to be joined by Greg Baxter, Greg, you've just wrapped up an intense first weekend in the league and we're all eager to hear your perspective. Can you just start by giving us uh, a player's eye view of the level of competition and your feelings following the weekend? Yeah, hello guys. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, obviously, eagerly anticipated is the right word. The first weekend of the season, everyone gets a buzz, especially as a player. Uh, for us at the Seven Oaks, um, we had a tough weekend. I'd say three of the top four, in my opinion, teams on paper, certainly. Inspire, West Brom and Leeds. Um, really close games uh, across the weekend for everyone. Uh, new experiences for teams that haven't been up before. New challenges. I think there was a fresh sense of optimism going into this season, which was lovely to be a part of. Great to hear. So we've got so much to talk about from obviously the, the league table to results to transfers. I think Alex is eagerly waiting the section on disciplinary uh, cards, red cards, yellow cards that occurred from across the weekend, as well as obviously looking forward to the World Cup with this being the only National League Premiership weekend prior to our eight players flying to Sydney. So uh, really excited to delve into it a little bit more. And I think this episode will uh, has a really interesting format for all of those that don't know. Uh, I actually wasn't present at the National League Premiership this weekend. So I'm kind of on the outside looking in and I can only take the results and certain statistics at face value. So I'm hoping you two can really uh, shine a light and elaborate on them more. Greg, obviously a player's perspective is invaluable and that's why we are so keen to get players involved in commentary because your insights uh, are so insightful and so fascinating. And Alex and I sometimes can't often comprehend kind of the thought processes and things that go behind that. And Alex in charge of the streaming operation. So although present is probably the busiest person at the Lee Westwood Sports Centre. So interesting to see what parts he picked up on from across the weekend. I just had a very interesting thought about all that. Actually, I was trying to work out who else would have seen as much football as me. And I'm not sure anyone was in the room for the entirety of the weekend to the same extent, possibly Catherine Nicholl, who was working very hard on the the data input for uh, the graphics and live streaming. So, I think myself and Kath were the only ones probably present in the the hall for the entirety of every game. Our new chair was there, and he was there a, a lot, but he did disappear off to uh, go and chat with a lot of people and players as well. But um, I think I might have been the only one in the in the in the room for the entire fixture weekend. It's typically, how it runs at the National League weekend. 
we 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 rarely see the light of day outside of the Lee Westwood Sports Centre. So um, no, really interested to get into it. I think a good way to go about doing this is to look at the Premiership table for all of those watching uh, at home. Uh, maybe if you want to get it, get it up in the background, just so you you can keep up to date with what we're following and how we're viewing it. So to kick things off, let's talk about West Bromwich Albion. Currently uh, top of the table with four wins from four uh, and have a more favourable goal difference than that of aspiring second. So Greg, give me your thoughts on West Brom uh, from game week one and then we can talk about kind of transfers and expectations going forward. I thought West Brom were back to their outstanding best, to be honest, from a player's point of view. Uh, looking at it from an outsider as well, as well as being able to play them, the wing connection between Marcus and Dylan, I thought was exemplary all weekend. Their link up was almost that of, I'm going to say, Ed Common and Sam when back in the peak Northern Thunder days. They were finding each other with ease. Everything they tried was coming off. Chris pushing himself a bit more forward, trying to get back to those times where he was the middleman and being the orchestrator. They were just playing some of the football that we've come to expect from West Brom over the last couple of seasons. That's interesting because, as I said, not being present and not being able to watch as much football on the streams as I would have necessarily liked, some of their games look really close. They obviously started with an emphatic 10-0 win over Hull and East Yorkshire PFC, which kind of gave them a real springboard to achieve further results. A very close two-on-one victory over Villa Rockets, who are typically very tough to break down, uh, as well as an, only a one-nil win over Leeds Chariots. And I've seen the single goal. I think it was a penalty from Chris Gordon. Um, people looking at that may not necessarily think or, or agree with your point that they're back to their best. But I, prior to the season, we 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 ran a interactive poll and engagement post across the WFA social media. And I predicted West Bromwich Albion to be champions for this year. And I was ridiculed by many Aspire uh, supporters, players and such. But I think they will learn massively from the events and the games from the 22-23 season in the fact that two games this weekend, were, which were very closely matched, certainly on the scoreboard, 2-1 and 1-0, they got the points they needed they got the game over the line whereas in in the last season's results um they they struggled drawing a number of games which ultimately led to aspire winning the league i think it's interesting you picked up that last season they uh they had a number of draws that they weren't happy with what i noticed in their play from this weekend is they've they've worked on alternative passing lanes and patterns of uh penetration into uh uh, and through a defence, based on, I think, the fact that, that teams began to work out where their patterns of play were previously. And so uh, I imagine Chris Gordon's worked hard um, uh, in terms of video analysis and looking at where that is as a problem and working on those connections um, with their, the wide players. Like I say, Dave, Dave Lewis, Dylan Kelsall and even Matt, Matt Gilbert, when he was on, all looked extremely uh, comfortable and well-connected with what, what their teammates were doing and were occupying spaces they didn't necessarily occupy last season um, 
And so I think there's been a slight tactical shift as well, which they're going to work through and have to take a bit of time to, to get sorted, but looks very good. Looks very good and looks well executed. The Leeds game uh, is a very interesting one, as, as partly because, although it was a, cl a close result, the reason for that is Leeds look exceptional. Leeds look really, really good this year. Um, and so, uh, although it, it might look like a, a, a not a brilliant result for West Brom, I think it, in the fullness of time, you'll find that that was a, a, a very, very good result for them. Uh, along the same lines, the 2-1 victory over Aston Villa, I commentated that game, so watched the entirety. They dominated territory and possession. It's just a very good, very strong, as we know, Villa defence. Pums are above Bubba. She kept them at bay for so long. And there was a slight uh, mistake at the back between Chris and Dave, I believe it was, that allowed Villa to get the equaliser, which did come against the run of play. So on paper, again, it looks like two wide always very cagey. But they did dominate both possession. They had numerous chances to score. They were creating lots and lots of pressure, which is wave after wave of West Brom attack. And to your point, Alex, I would agree. Leeds do look very, very good. As I said in the intro, that they're in the top. They're in the top four for me, and they have got the new partnership in the middle of Lewis and Dan, which is going to have its teething problems and take time. But I think for West Brom, that will, as you say, along the end of the season we'll look back and say that that was a good victory yes i can very much assume that and we'll come on to lee's chariots in much more detail uh later on because there's so many exciting factors to discuss about that team uh one thing on the topic of west bromwich albion uh, and we can we can weave this into our kind of analysis of the different teams as we go down the table is the team of the weekend poll as one point Chris Gordon featuring heavily uh, among the votes and secured his position in one of the starting four. So a huge congratulations to him. Um, but I think you've alluded to it in the fact that any number of the West Bromwich Albion players could have been present. Dylan Kelsall had a fantastic weekend and worth noting for all of those unaware, Dylan Kelsall scored uh, his 100th National League goal I think in their opening game against Hull and East Yorkshire PFC, last season's top goal scorer. Uh, I think he had 20, finished the season on 26 uh, last year, has now got well underway to try and to match, if not beat that total. You had uh, five goals this weekend, Dylan. So um, excellent weekend personally for him. Um, but like you say, the, the West Brom unit as a whole looked like they could interchange uh, easily. Uh, players were swapping positions, rotations, uh, subs on and off, and it didn't affect the style of play or the quality of the play at all. So they, they certainly look formidable uh, as a unit to this, this weekend so far. One thing I want to get both of your perspectives and kind of thoughts on is the transfer of... Interesting on the topic of Leeds Chariots is the transfers of both Logan Mitchelson from Leeds Chariots to West Bromwich Albion and Lewis Harris from West Bromwich Albion to Leeds Chariots. And I can't help but think that these moves will benefit both sides significantly. And 
to elaborate on that, on the topic of Logan Mitchelson, personally speaking, I think he is the closest matched in terms of traits to Chris Gordon in terms of a dynamic uh, keeper. And whilst losing Lewis Harris could be seen as a significant blow to their um, title aspirations, we know the quality that Lewis has, and we'll talk about him more in the Leeds Chariots game. I want to gain your thoughts on the transfer of Logan Mitchelson and not being there and not watching the streams, how he fared if and when he came on. I think, like you say, he's one of those that, for him, it's an opportunity to, to go to one of, depends which camp you're in, one of, if not the best side in the country, and to learn from players who have been there at the top of the game for so long and have continued and kept their levels at the highest possible level they could be. He came on against us when they were, I believe, with 4 up at the time. And Chris was very much helping him and guiding him and saying, look, this is what I want you to do. You go over here, do this. Just taking on that experience and knowledge will help him grow throughout the season to get more game time as he develops and fits more into perhaps West Brom's system. And that's that's the word, system. West Brom plays such a unique system when compared to other teams that Logan has played for. Recently transferring from Leeds Chariots, I don't think they necessarily knew his best position or how to best utilise him across the 22-23 season, which probably uh, frustrated him and the coaching setup at Leeds Chariots. Prior to that, Northern Thunder, and whilst Northern Thunder had the attacking outfit and the quality and depth, never really adopted that four-out system that we know West Brom to utilise. Similarly with Logan's national team, Scotland, uh, they're very young relatively in their development as a national competing side. So they play very kind of pragmatic, defensive, counter-attacking football um, when they play. So I think we have to give Logan that grace period to adjust to a completely unique system that West Brom utilise and adopt. And hopefully between now and the next round of fixtures in December, the 9th and 10th, we will see him uh, hopefully accessing... uh, valuable training opportunities and sessions with West Brom so he will better kind of understand that system for the next round of fixtures. Having said all that, the grace period and patience of development, when he came on, he did look good and didn't completely look like a a fish out of water. He took it in his stride and said, look, I'm here to learn, but I'm also here. I want to play. I'm not just going to, I don't just want to sit on the bench and sort of let, Chris and Marks and Dylan and Dave sort of carry me along the way. I want to be able to sort of make my own input, make my own stamp on this side. And I think to that point, it'll also be good when he goes back to Scotland for national team training. He'll take the skills he's learned at West Brom and be able to pass those on to his Scottish teammates. And that's why I think it's a really shrewd appointment for West Brom and Jalbian. Because if we take Lewis Harris, for instance, he's a very attacking-minded player. And he still is, 
irrelevant of the position that Leeds um, use him within, what Logan gives West Brom is that stability and that cover in the defensive uh, areas of the pitch. So if Chris, as you said, is more expansive and wants to be more attacking, he has that uh, defence and that kind of uh, that wall behind him to then build on in attacking phases of play. Whilst we're on the topic of uh, goalkeepers, I just want to chuck in there a big uh, shout out and well done to Tom Kelly of Aspire this this weekend, and who we... was brilliant, absolutely superb, cool, calm, uh, dug his side out of danger any time the ball broke through, uh, distribution was superb, uh, always found a teammate, if he couldn't find a teammate, had the presence of mind just to go, I'm putting it out, that's fine. Uh, and so as a, if we're looking at defensive solidity, uh, Tom Kelly in there is, is, is there for me this weekend. Uh, and I think that's a very good point that you raised. Tom is continually getting better and more confident within the defensive areas of the pitch for Aspire. And I think this gives us a nice t- uh, kind of way to transition onto Aspire who finished the uh the weekend in second position with an almost faultless weekend of the four games they played. They won four. Um, They scored, I think, 14 goals without conceding a single goal. Just before, I'm sure Greg will be able to provide a really good uh, perspective operating as a goalkeeper for Seven Oaks. I just want to say uh, that word goalkeeper has completely shifted in terms of how we perceive it in the sport of power chair football in a relatively short amount of time. In the last, I don't know, maybe year, two years, we're really branching away from the matter that goalkeepers are just an obstacle between the posts. Typically of years gone by, it would maybe be your um, least uh, technically proficient player between the sticks. And, we're really starting to see some fantastic goalkeepers. I mean, if you just go through the league, just off the top of my head, you've got Chris Gordon for West Brom, Tom Kelly for Aspire, Villa Rockets have Amir Ali, Teesside have Alistair Hay, Newcastle United rotate but go between Aaron Guthrie and Lee Armstrong. Uh, Leeds Chariots, I think they used uh, Lewis Harris there this weekend. And that's just to mention a few. They are all incredible players that aren't just an obstacle between the posts and you, you're seeing this more and I have to give credit to the England setup and West Brom for this because you're seeing goalkeepers within the National League be more expansive be more brave and I think Tom Kelly is the perfect person to to reference within that and it was the, the first game that I properly saw him uh, exhibit the traits that you're talking about is the cup final at St George's Park last year. They will he not just his defensive stability, it was being brave in possession, coming out and his distribution was incredible. And to see him feature in the team of the weekend this for game week one, as well as get the plaudits from yourself, um it's really good to see and full credit and um to Tom Kelly. I think Tom is the perfect example for Logan, just to link the two points. Tom moved to Aspire, 
bided his time, learnt the system, used the guidance of John. Obviously, and he's John Bowling, he's England captain for a reason, extremely good. And now it's paying dividends and we're seeing him grow and develop as a player. I've known Tom for years, product of the Portsmouth Powerchair Football Club. I'm just going just to throw that one out there. Known him for absolute years. And so to see his development from when he first came through at Pompey to now, as you say, he was everywhere at the back for Spire. On the rare occasion it got past John and a team broke, he was there just to calmly sweep it up. And if he needed to, take it to a tackle but was equally as confident in just popping it off to John and saying, all right, we'll go on another attack then. And I think, like I said, if Logan can just sit back, learn, use the game time he does get to put those sorts of things into practice, I think Tom Kelly's a perfect example for Logan to follow. Talking about Aspire and their fantastic weekend, we can't not talk about John Bolden and just the stature and the talent that he has. He was voted as the standout performer of the weekend, won it by an absolute landslide. It's almost got to the point that if he doesn't feature within the team of the weekend, something's gone wrong (laughs) because he's there 99% of the time by default because he is the most excellent player I have probably ever witnessed for me the best player in the world so just your thoughts both of you on that point considering this is the last competitive football he will play prior to flying out to Australia to compete at the 2023 Fit for Power Chair Football World Cup I know John would also like to just do a quick thank you to Brad Bates I think for this weekend I think he wouldn't have got his chair to the weekend. Otherwise, Brad did a massive detour um, from the West Country through to uh, Wokingham and back up to, to Nottingham to get John's chair there. So uh, I think it was John's old chair as well. So without uh, without that, John wouldn't have been there this weekend. But he, he is looking sharp. He's looking uh, motivated. He's very much... Uh, the top of his game at the minute in terms of what he's uh, producing on the pitch. He's he's actually looks like he's getting less angry on the pitch than he has done in previous seasons. And I think that's partly previous seasons he's been frustrated with himself and, and potentially some of the performances that have uh, resulted in, in that. But at the moment, he's looking calm, but focused. He's delivering, he's sharp. He's always two or three steps ahead of the uh, the game in terms of what's going to happen next. He's dominating. He's choosing what he's, he wants to do. And I think at the moment with the form of Brad Bates and Dan McClellan on the wings for him, he's getting the, the feed and the, uh, the passing back to him where he wants it. He's getting players in positions where he wants to feed them the ball as well. And it, they're looking very, very strong and very, very dominant. And this, this league season, if it continues like this first weekend, is going to be very, very tight and very, very interesting. You've run out of superlatives uh, to describe John, don't you, at this point? You need to get a very large thesaurus. Speaking as a player, this they were our first game of the season. Of course, that is the team we always want to face first game of the season. Nice welcoming tri- uh, treble-winning league champs. And they were, I said this about West Brom, they were 
just superb. They carved us open. It was sort of, it was thinking going into the game, going, all right, let's keep it as tight as we can for as long as we can and see if we can maybe nick a goal on a counter-attack. 40 seconds later, we're 1-0 down. Uh, and that game plan went completely out the window. Their goals were stunning. They just, everything they wanted to do came off. I think at the end of the season, you will see two of the goals they scored against us alone, probably in the goal of the season nominees. They probably would have had a third right at full time. Thank you, Paul Pearson, for blowing the full time whistle when you did. And uh, to reference, as you said, John, I don't think in his preferred chair. He had the stress around trying to get the chair sorted, building up to that. In our opening game, because our new signing, James Mason, was banned following yellow card accumulation at the end of last season, John used uh, James's triangle pieces to hold his bumper in. He was playing in a real makeshift chair and still produced the same John Bolding, peak John Bolding, which is perfect timing going into the World Cup. It's perfect timing in terms of a talent point of view. As long as his chair's fixed and he's not bodging together his chair for the World Cup, then we're okay. Um, so just re- just touching on the, a point you made there, Greg, about uh, Aspire's 5-0 victory over Seven Oaks. That kick-started their season. They went then went on to win 4-0 over Nomad Knights, 3-0 over Manchester United, and then they faced Teesside. And I want to get your thoughts on this because, and we'll come on to Teesside in much more detail later, they are a new-looking outfit for this season. For those that don't know, Ed Common uh, recently joined Teesside as a result of Northern Thunder uh, folding uh, from our National League. Ed Common, one of the most technically proficient players anywhere on the planet, and he will only help in adding to Teesside's quality for a team that finished in third place last season. That was the game I was I was going to use as that barometer for Aspire to see whether or not that they could take their form from the 22-23 season and directly uh, input it into this upcoming one. So they won 2-0, but if either of you had a chance to watch that and or commentate that, uh, your thoughts on that? Because Teesside had a faultless weekend apart from that 2-0 defeat to Aspire. So for me, Teesside are yet to, yet to fulfil their potential. Um, Leeds looked a much better side uh, with Lewis Harris in with them and Teesside looked a better side with Ed Common in. However, I still don't think they're, they're fully all on the same page all the time yet. And so I think there's a lot more to come from Teesside. So they've done really well in this opening weekend to, to get the three victories they did. Uh, but I think there's more to come from them. Uh, against Aspire, it's, it's really hard, isn't it, when, when you're facing John Bolding and a team ticking along as well as they did. A little, little note to, to put in for you as well. Uh, Aspire attempted, I believe, four boom booms over the weekend. Brad and John. Uh, 75% success rate in terms of whether or not they connected and, and did well and 25% success rate in terms of goals scored. So heading into a World Cup uh, with two, two players uh, sinking together so nicely at club level and potentially one of the hardest 
things to perform as a boom boom successfully. Uh, a 25% success rate in terms of goals is good and a 75% success rate in terms of contact is is really good. Uh, so the, the goal itself, uh, you could blame the goalkeeping. I was just going to say, for people won't be able to see our reactions, but we record this alongside a Zoom. And not being present, I don't know the inner workings, the inner scores and who he they were able to convert a boom boom shot against but I can only assume that it was Greg Baxter between the sticks for seven oaks <laughs> the five nil defeat which led to that 25% being converted I will take all credit for that one in my defence I was on the near post Carl was on the far post and it went far post so I don't know if you blame the keeping Al but no, it was one of the two that I mentioned that is probably up there for goal of the season it, you blink and you miss it it was in the back of the net it came I, off I don't perfectly. think I've, I don't think I've seen a more powerful boom boom at all. I don't think you can blame you or Carl to be no, fair. Carl couldn't uh, do anything. I, I was I was v- just very impressed with the technical execution. I've seen Ed Common in the la- uh, end of last season um, uh, do an interpretation of a a boom boom that's a little bit safer in terms of its execution. Uh, I would say Brad and John's version uh, is is the full works and produces a, a lot more power than than Ed's version when he was at Thunder. And to pull it off three times in a row with in, in getting accurate shots on goal was uh, incredibly impressive. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing that over in Sydney. So huge congratulations to Aspire, um, the points we've just mentioned. Going Looking down the table in third spot, we currently have Villa Rockets who uh, managed to get 10 points from their opening five games. And just for a little bit of context, across the season, each of our 12 teams, um, of the five weekends they compete, two of which will be five-game weekends. So Villa Rockets have played uh, a game more than the teams in their immediate vicinity, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they managed to get 10 points from five games. Um, they opened with a nil-nil draw against Nottinghamshire before uh, a one-nil victory over Manchester United, recently promoted from the Championship. Um, spoken about their defensive stability, and I think, as Greg alluded to, they exhibited that brilliantly against West Bromwich Albion, only losing by a single goal. And if West Bromwich Albion are back to their attacking best, as Greg put it, I'm sure Villa Rockets will be happy with that result. And then a faultless Sunday, two games against Hull and East Yorkshire and Seven Oaks PFC ended in two wins, 5-0 and 2-0 respectively. Um, Greg, as you obviously played against Villa Rockets across game week one and being a a close affiliate to Seven Oaks, living in Seven Oaks, I obviously have a a natural um, link to your team and whenever I've watched you play Villa Rockets I refer to them as your bogey team what's your thoughts on that uh, Villa are a team that we seem to always split the games so I'm hoping that's the same for this season because it's one of those the games can go either way they're usually close affairs one or two goals in them we seem to if we win the first game, they'll win the second game of the season and vice versa. They are, as we all know, as I said earlier, extremely difficult to break down. They are defensively so solid. Almost the 
counter to West Bromwich four out. They defend so heavily and then will hit you on counter-attacks very quickly with the experience they have in that side. And I think they are a team to watch as a sort of, if you are trying to watch the systems, tell which system is better, you watch maybe your West Brom and Aspire and then you watch a Villa Rockets and you can compare them very closely over the, as, as the season develops. They finished in ninth last season. Um, they have 28 points from their 22 games. Um, I think they've started the weekend brilliantly and I want to give full credit to that defensive stability you talk about. And I think that's very much owed to Amir Ali or Baba and Hamza Madir. The acquisition of Hamza Madir to their side last season kind of completely transformed their approach. And full credit to him, he featured as one of the subs on our team of the weekend. And Amit Ali, the coach of the weekend, as voted by our premiership players, coaches and officials. Um, what are your thoughts, Alex, on Hamza Madir? He looked really solid uh, this weekend. I saw a couple of the games uh, quite uh, for the whole games, I, I was uh, entering the data for the uh, streams in the database, so was able to watch. He's developed, or appears to have developed, a, a very good understanding of the of what he needs to do to keep his team ticking over defensively. He comes out on occasions and uh, almost looking like it's a, a four out system on occasions, but a fair amount of the time he's he's holding back, and it allows. Uh, Amirelli to roam the pitch a little bit more and to move around a bit more. I do think the uh, there's a little bit more to come from Villa this season. A couple of their players, although they had a good weekend, a couple of their players I think have got more potential. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how the, the season develops for them. But certainly uh, so far now we've, we've identified that two or three teams that are now a bit more solid at the back because of their uh, goalkeeping performances, and as a result, are able to be a bit more expansive and attacking at the top of the pitch. So it's uh, shaping up to be a very interesting season, and uh, our conversations around what a modern power chair goalkeeper, certainly within the English style of the game for the league and national team, is uh, is a key feature so far. Contrary to popular belief, I don't actually support any one single National League team. So when I give my predictions, my insight, my analysis on certain results, performances or wider predictions for the season, there's no offence <laughs> intended from that. And I predicted West Brom to win the league, um, as mentioned earlier. And on that point that Alex just raised... I just want it to be competitive. You've seen Teesside leads strengthen considerably in the off-season. If we can have four or five teams, all with the belief that they can go on uh, to challenge for the title, it will make our product, as in our National League, which is already, biasedly speaking, the world leading in terms of quality of football, quantity of football, we're right up there. And that's not just exclusive to power chair football. I think any impairment-specific football or mainstream football struggles to 
have that draw and that competitiveness and that quality that we show. Um, so if a number of them teams can challenge and it's not just a one or two horse race, we're in for a really exciting season. And we'll talk about the World Cup in a little bit more detail as we progress through this episode. But it was a sh- almost a strange dynamic game week one, being the only National League football premiership football prior to uh, this, the World Cup in Sydney. So you might almost see a completely different approach from teams uh, in the December round of fixtures and going forward. So I'm just, I just hate the fact that we have to wait months for the next football. I think last season, while, yes, the title race was in the end a two-horse race, it was the closest National League season we've had in that middle pack. At some point, like there was like four or five points separating third and ninth. But they say Villa finished ninth on 28 points. 28 points going back seasons would have been good enough for fourth or fifth. That's just how competitive the middle section, lower middle section of the, the season was. I think this year, that competitive section moves up the table a little bit. As in, I think first to third, fourth could be very close. And as teams develop going forwards, into the next coming couple of seasons, the balance and power may shift. So I, yeah, I think first fourth is up for grabs. I'm saying this after one first weekend. Fifth to seventh, or eighth, ninth again is anyone's guess. It, that's what I love. You can't just say a team and go, oh, okay, they'll finish there, they'll finish there. This year, I think anyone can be anyone. Prior to us talking about Teesside who finished fourth, I think a significant factor that led to certain results and performances across game week one was red and yellow cards. Um, Alex, being present and being a stat freak, do you want to talk about kind of the, the red cards that were given and the implications going forward for them individual players? I resent Geek. No, I don't really. Um, I'm more than happy with Geek. Uh, interesting, we had uh, three red cards over the weekend, uh, which is three more than the entirety of uh, last season in the Premiership. Uh, a variety of uh, reasons for those red cards as well. So the, the two that I wanted to pick out and, and look at specifically uh, was Regan Kemp for Nomad Knights and Cole Simpson for Hull and East Yorkshire. Uh, Regan got a uh, straight red for denying a uh, obvious goal-scoring opportunity, is the wording. Now, just pick up on the word obvious goal-scoring opportunity at that point. Uh, he was driving back, cleared the ball off the line, and uh, in doing so, drove over the line. So, uh, depending on how you read the wording and the letter of the law, uh, it's a red card. If it's not a red card, um, then it's probably not even a yellow card. Because the only way you can say that isn't a red card is if you say that he cleared the ball first and then went over the red line, uh, went over the line, and 
how do you disentangle those two those two actions i suppose so that's that's one interesting uh observation on that red card particularly with uh the laws of the game not being entirely 100% clear on that uh, i had an interesting conversation with jeff lewis our head referee afterwards that uh he thinks it'd probably be helpful to issue some guidance certainly for the referees around that and under that guidance it would still be a red card because it was all part of the same action and therefore uh, left the field of, of play to deny goal scoring obvious goal scoring opportunity the reason it was obvious is the ball would definitely have gone in if Regan had not um, uh, intercepted it so that was a red card that resulted in a, a one game ban there are a variety of red card offences that result in different ban lengths so that's a one game ban there's some three-game ban offences and there's also one six-game ban offence in our wonderful game of power chair football. Uh, I'll get onto those in a moment. Uh, Cole Simpson received a red card for a second bookable uh, offence and both his bookable offences were technical ones where he left the field of play to avoid a two-on-one. Um, uh, on both occasions, I was uh, obviously had a very good view up in the balcony but also had the benefit of uh, almost instant replay with uh, our stream and uh, officials were correct on that one as well. So with uh, with that, it's also a one-game ban. You can't leave the field of play if it means you're avoiding a turn one because you're, in doing so, you're uh, avoiding an offence. If you leave the field of play to take a free kick or collect a ball, etc., that, that sort of stuff's all okay. But you can't leave the, the field of play to avoid a turn one. That results in a yellow. So two kind of different red cards in the sense that different offences, but both for leaving the pitch um, as an outfield player when you're not supposed to. Greg, did you have a question on that? Well, I think the interesting point on that is where Nomad, I know, specifically had queries with Regan's red card was an incident that took place in our game against West Brom when uh, Marcus... Harris is obviously he's driving against me on the goal line, trying to find an angle that he does so well, try and push me over the line with the ball. He did that against Villa Rockets on the Saturday and scored. And Kyle is behind me, not touching the ball. So I've got the ball in between me and Marcus. Kyle's behind me and he goes over the line and around the outside of the post. And Marcus sees that as does Chris and rightfully appeals, at which point then a discussion takes place between Mark Harris, who was a referee, and Millie Bean, who was the assistant on that side. Now, Millie would have sent Kyle off, because she did it was a denial of a clear goal-scoring opportunity, as you said. Mark overruled her on the basis that, I think, because the ball was in between myself and Marcus, rather than Kyle and Marcus. It wasn't him denying the goal opportunity because I was still in the way. You speak to Marcus, which I did afterwards. He had he said he put his house on him getting past me. So make of that what you will. But I believe the differentiation was that because I had control of the ball rather than Kyle, he wasn't deemed to be denied goals opportunity. He just went off the post and round. But that's where Nomad went consistency-wise, momentum from Regan, he saved it and then went off the pitch. Is that not the same thing that Cardiff, that is just my 
a point I so, would raise. So this caused all sorts of debate as well, as you can imagine, uh, up in the, uh, the balcony. And once again, we had the benefit of the replay of uh, our live stream. It was perfectly positioned to be able to talk you through exactly what happened and potentially what could have been the outcome, depending on your interpretation. So the difference between uh, the law on this one would be whether or not Carl's actions uh, denied an obvious goal-scoring opportunity or whether they denied a goal-scoring opportunity. An obvious goal-scoring opportunity is the wording in the laws of the game that was, requires a red card. A goal-scoring opportunity requires a yellow card. Um, so that would be the, the differentiating factor potentially for a referee to decide whether or not uh, Carl's intervention was significant or not. On watching the replay and the momentum of the chairs, and I have to say it took two or three watches, if not a few more, to fully decide. I, I'm on Marcus's side. He was going to put you right through that goal and that ball was going over the line. Um, so in that respect, I think Carl's actions did deny an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, but I think it was entirely impossible for the officials to uh, to be able to determine that at the speed of play and the angle of which the, the what happened there. So in my opinion, if, it, if they'd given a yellow card to Carl for leaving the field of play for denying uh, a goal-scoring opportunity, but not an obvious one, from what they saw and what they were able to interpret, I would have said that would have been a correct decision. Um, the, I suppose the one official that managed to get it correct uh, from, from their call on the line, Millie, she might, might well have had the best view of, of, of the change of uh, chair positions. So that's, that, was a, that wasn't a quick and easy um, conclusion to come to either, I must say. That took us a while. And neither, nor was it a quick and obvious one to come to on the field at the time because there were numerous conversations that took place between Mark and Billy. Marcus was protesting his case vigorously, as you can imagine. Chris wasn't happy with the decision. I backed myself, Alex. I don't think he was going to get past me, but I, I need to watch it back just in the heat of the moment. I feel I had him in my pocket. It's fine. Um, but I believed it was a yellow card offence rather than a red card. But I probably need to watch back and say, Either way, but I just felt at the time I was going, that's the right decision. At the end of the day, Carl stayed on the pitch. Uh, they scored the penalty and went on to win the game. 5-0. So, I don't think... And i got, I, I got to say, this, this is no criticism of any officials whatsoever because it took, as I say, a number of replays and discussions and conversations uh, amongst two or three of us up in the balcony, including uh, uh, head referee Jeff Lewis, to kind of get to a point where we kind of had a a reasonable view on it and even then there was that's down to the referee's interpretation on these events this is how they should interpret it rather than this is definite one way or another and that's why I would say the referee is always right I said that on commentary all the time even if you disagree with the decision at that point that's the decision the referee's made so in their view they're right the referee's always right don't argue on that topic, and I think we will dedicate a specific episode to this question, but for you, Alex, do you think the introduction of a version of VAR could be introduced to power chair football or certainly trialled? I just think our streams provide such a fantastic viewpoint and a different viewpoint 
it's very different being down low on the court and the um the benefit it affords us being up high being able to see the play so clearly do you think the referees would welcome the introduction of a kind of a video replay to aid their decision making i think at the moment we we need to get to a slightly higher level of uh consistency and uh views specifically i think you'd need a bird's eye view of the the goal area and maybe two or three meters outside that that uh, uh, straight uh, straight down from the top for a var system at the moment, our streams are great, but we don't always have a complementary angle from each goal. We don't always have an identical angle. In, and so, therefore, some decisions would be able to benefit from those this, that, that video. Some would, wouldn't be able to benefit from that video. So I think there needs to be uh, a, a thought process in that. Uh, I think long term, Yeah, completely. I think long-term, it would definitely uh, be welcome and could come in. Um, and the other thing to say is at the moment, the... The benefit of the the replays, as we're talking about things now, certainly to the referees, and I've know know they've been used in European competitions when we've run live streams there, is it allows a head referee to have development footage or tools to aid the development of referees and their training and and to re- review and look back on. Um, I don't think we're at a technical level yet where we can say yet yeah, we can offer some form of adjudication uh, video services for a referee. However, we are at a stage where we can definitely offer um, some reflective practice stuff to look at and, um, and come and see how, they do, how they're, they're on there. Certainly a couple of referees do come up and, and see me at National League weekends just to check that they've made the right decision. And I've got to tell you, nine times out of ten, they have done so. On that point, uh, I believe it, was, it has been trialled in Denmark, VAR. One, Denmark have trialed VAR before because I remember sharing this on social media and causing quite a large debate unwittingly amongst different perspectives from referees and power football players uh, and I had a chat with Tony Christensen from Denmark in when I was out in Geneva for the GBG Geneva's Cup just a couple of weeks ago and he doesn't mind me saying this said that he doesn't feel it could work for anything other than maybe looking at three in the box sort of violations. And with the greatest respect to Denmark and their their level of competition, I think you've got to focus on Alex's point a few moments ago that he's sceptical to jump into this until that infrastructure and that quality and that consistency of recording match footage is there. And... We've said it already. I believe we're world leading in quality of both play, but the quality of streams, commentary, graphics, etc. And if Alex is hesitant to jump into that or jump through that hoop, I question whether Denmark are. And if Denmark haven't got that level of streams and ability to record live match footage, um, I I wonder if we could potentially trial this specifically we've got varied cameras uh, and varied views around the lee westwood sports center we was to dedicate if it was a one core um setup and we was able to get the bird's eye view as Alex or different varied cameras i wonder if that would alter tony's viewpoint 
because I didn't see that Denmark had trialled it. I can't help but feel they don't have that infrastructure or that understanding of the infrastructure yet. Uh, maybe. I suppose if you try it now, you then know perhaps going forward what works, what doesn't work, even in your limited capacity, whether with the developments in streaming and different camera angles as you go on, it allows you to then modify what you did first time and say, well, this is what we tried first time, it didn't work, but maybe it'll work now. Uh, who knows? But I believe Alex is probably right. If we haven't quite got enough camera angles and we don't know how it would work as in immediate feedback and where the referees would have to go to go see the camera, can't have referees just running up the stairs at the League Western Sports Centre to get up to the balcony to then have to run all the way back down the stairs. And the suspense on the middle of the year, it should be quite dramatic at that point. I think the implementation of of any video uh, review um, would bring with it a, a variety of issues. And I don't think we'd implement it in the power chair football. I don't think the implementation in power chair football would be remotely similar to uh, the running game. Uh, certainly, I don't think there'd be a need for a video assistant referee, which is what the, the, the VAR system is. Rather, a video review system for the on-pitch referee to run over side, uh, the side of the pitch and to review if they request, if they if they wanted it, or if there's a set number of requests from a um, allowed per team. So, for instance, if 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 Chris and Marcus were insistent that that they would have got the ball over the line, and they want to go and uh, ask the referee to go and uh, review the the footage, the angle from above the above the goal line there would have been perfect for them to be able to go over and see has Carl influenced the direction of travel of the of the play. And has that been, therefore, obviously denying a goal-scoring opportunity? And that's the key uh, element there. And I think looking through the list of decisions that a, a video assistant could make, I would say 90% of them, if not all of them, will be in the goal area. And so that's where the, the, the camera footage and the, the review system would need to be focused, which is a slightly different scenario from setting up a stream to to broadcast the play of a game and allow people to enjoy it. So I think there's a, there's a additional camera angles uh, would be required more than anything else. And it's those, those instances that occur inside the box that are the game-changing ones, whether that would be a, uh, a red card, a yellow card, a penalty, a goal, um, dis disallowed or allowed. And so that's where the, the focus of the, the uh, ass assistance for the referee, video assistance would be, rather than uh, yet again, another, an extra official, fourth or fifth, depending on which way you look at it. So that would be my, that's how I would imagine the implementation would, would occur in power chair. It's food for thought, certainly. And it's one of the reasons, one of the very contributing reasons why we wanted to set up this podcast to discuss ideas and initiatives that could better our sport. And this is just one of many. Getting back to, uh, the results from game week one now look down the table. We come across Teesside, who we've mentioned and spoken about on varied levels. But they had a fantastic weekend. Um, we'll come on to Newcastle in a bit. But they opened, Teesside opened their account with an impressive 3 1 win over Newcastle United Foundation before a fairly emphatic 6 0 win over recently promoted Manchester United. 
On Sunday, they had uh, a 2-0 win over West Bromwich Albion Throstles before losing 2-0 to Aspire. Just want to get your thoughts on Teesside as an outfit, Greg. And obviously, we've spoken about the introduction of Ed Common and how how seamlessly or not seamlessly he integrates within a system that um, was already very proficient without him finishing third in the league last season. And also, love to get both of your thoughts on what you how you feel that will affect or the implications it will have on Tyler Reeve, who for me personally, I regard as one of the most talented young players anywhere in the world. Well, I'd back you up with your shout of Tyler being one of the most talented young players in the world. His rise through the ranks to now, he is one of those eight that will be going to Sydney in a few weeks' time. The team, I think, when Ed joined... The big debate was, how are they going to set up? Are they going to play Ed as a second pivot? I'm Tyler, and they're going to move Tyler out wider, put Ed in the middle, where he's most accustomed to playing uh, Northern Thunder. What we saw was, it was in fact Tyler who kept his role for the majority of what I saw. First pivot in the middle, and Ed was playing out wide, which is where he does for England. And it just gives Tyler a, not only another weapon, but a weapon of, as you mentioned earlier, a mass like technical ability that Ed possesses, just will increase and just allow them to get even more flowing football going, as we saw from last season in their incredible third place finish. If they can make that system work, I think it benefits all parties involved. Um, I was very similar to yourself, Greg. I was very much unsure of what system or what tactical approach Teesside would, would adopt. And knowing that they are utilising Ed out wide, not only doesn't halt the development of any of the Teesside players who performed so brilliantly within their respective roles last season, so helps Ed incredibly best prepare for the World Cup. We know that England will predominantly start in the competitive games of a one-two pivot of John Bolden and Chris Gordon. And that I think that speaks volumes to how good that pair is because Ed is one of the most superb central players anywhere in the world. England, he does operate in a wide position. We saw him do it so effectively and so brilliantly in Finland when England won the European Championships. So to know that Teesside are kind of emulating that and trying to replicate that to best prepare him in the one weekend they had for Sydney, uh, I think is really good for all parties involved. It just gives him the ability to focus on one position. While there are certain skills that overlap for both uh, first second pivot and wingers, so your basic fundamental skills, your positioning, um, you do a lot more probably two touches out wide, he hasn't got to transfer, keep transferring from club to national side a lot now. He can focus on his wing play, knowing that he is so experienced and has such an ability that if he does find himself in the middle, the way that England rotate and have all four players able to play probably all four positions, it's not going to be as, too much of a detriment to his middle play. It just gives him something to completely focus on and just channel all his efforts into now, which I, as you say, can only be a benefit to him 
Teesside and ultimately England going forward. No, it's really, really good to know. And the fact that uh, Owen Swift and Paul Pearson as two excellent coaches who secured the Premiership Coach of the Season for the 22-23 campaign um, have taken that into consideration because there's a number of talented players that we haven't even mentioned. Shout out to Alistair Hay, their, their predominant goalkeeper, who for me was a standout across their uh, performances last season. Mitch Tinkler, one of the brightest um, talents coming through the ranks, currently part of the Regional Emergent Talent Programme uh, delivered by the Football Association. And obviously Dylan Pearson and Owen Swift to complement that with their experience within the most competitive league uh, in the country. So, no, really excited. It's a real shame that we only have that one National League weekend prior to the World Cup because... I think Teesside will only continue to improve the more they play. I think the addition of it also just helps. They have such a well-balanced side now. They have the youth, Mitch and Tyler, from through and Tyler, as we say, coming fast, becoming one of the standout players in the league and will continue to be at that level for however long he wants to be, can be. I say, they've also got the experience of Owen Swift, Dylan Pearson, and now with Common, just to be able to guide the young players through moments where they've not potentially been before, through scenarios like that, but to also help complement the young skills and help bring them forward. Progressing on to uh, Newcastle United Foundation, who are currently occupying the fifth position in the premiership table. Uh, They uh, had a mixed weekend, certainly on paper. They played five, won three, lost two. But I'm going to go back to a point that Alex said earlier in the fact that West Brom were only able to secure one nil win over these chariots. And it will take the fullness of time to really um, take into consideration certain results in the proper context. Newcastle started with a 3-1 defeat to Leeds Chariots. Can I get your thoughts on that, Alex? So just to go back to the West Brom Leeds game, I, there there was some difference of opinion, I would imagine, on the uh, the penalty given that uh, resulted in the, the goal uh, that won the game. The It was given against Lewis as he was reversing across the box. I think it was Marcus who was then span in. And so the contact was was a combination of Lewis reversing and Marcus spinning in, both of which would make you responsible for the foul uh, and the contact. So there was a judgment call to be made. Um, obviously, Leeds players, fans, coaches uh, were definitely of the opinion that Marcus was swinging in and therefore was the problem. And uh, uh, West Brom were very clear that Lewis was reversing in and so Lewis was the problem. Uh, watching the replay again numerous times and conversations and discussions, it was it was probably felt that a match official could have given it either way up to them, uh, but actually Lewis's uh, speed of reversing was faster than Marcus's speed of spin. Um, Lewis was the one that couldn't see, um, and so was probably uh, given the uh, the benefit of the doubt to, to Marcus on, on that scenario. Uh, I think Marcus struck the ball as well as part of his spin. So 
that was the the kind of the conversation around that penalty incident. And at the far end, uh, on a fast break, right at the end, uh, a match official who remained nameless, uh, who was up in the balcony watching, uh, felt there was a, a potential penalty for Leeds down the far end. But as it was a fast break, uh, it was difficult for the match officials to have been uh, up with the speed of play to necessarily see it. And the incident was on the blind side of, of all the, the match officials. It wasn't a strong Leeds appeal, but there was there was certainly an instant there that could have changed the dynamic of the game uh, towards the end of the, the, the match. So watching Leeds play West Brom, they both obviously like a, an open game and, and passing open open football. That hasn't changed uh, in Leeds' approach, even with the addition of, of Lewis Harris. And I've got to say, as, as a back two, Lewis Harris and Dan Rigby are playing their own style. It's not certainly not one you'd necessarily associate with uh, your traditional back to Chris Gordon, John Bolding for England. But it's very effective. Lewis and Dan both get the chance to roam quite freely and, and uh, the distance between the pair of them could, at times is much wider than you'd necessarily expect. But they never didn't look like they were out of position or uh, the shape was a problem too often. They were primarily looking to, can we create a shape that allows us to attack? And I was... Very, very impressed with Leeds this weekend. They're one of my, the three the three teams I, I was most impressed with over the course of the weekend was Aspire, West Brom and Leeds. And I think, I think those three will make up your top three. That pretty much answers my question on the topic of Newcastle United. So thank <laughs> you about that. So they obviously started with a, a 3-1 defeat to Leeds Charity, who we know, as Alex has just mentioned, will be... Uh, right up there, if not title challenges come game week five. Um, Newcastle then went on for a consecutive 3-1 defeat against Teesside, who we've obviously spoken about the quality and depth that they have. They then went on a really impressive run, Newcastle United. 5-0 win over Nottinghamshire, 4-0 win over Nomad Knights, and a 3-1 win over West Bromwich Albion Throstles. And a shout-out to Sam Smith, who secured seven goals across the first weekend of football. He's only three goals off his whole 22-23 season. So something to certainly consider uh, for the upcoming weekends from December onwards. Um, Greg, your thoughts on Newcastle United? Because for me, they've been a frustrating team because I don't think they necessarily know what their best lineup or tactical approach is. But the more we play, the more Jamie Harrison tinkers, I think he's going to he's going to unlock that formula sooner rather than later. Yeah, Newcastle, right? I can't go off on a tangent about no bad nights then. Uh, Newcastle United, I think you've, they've got various options. That's the thing that Jamie Harrison has at his disposal. Is maybe to some you could say too many, and it can lead to tinkering your team too much and not allowing you to settle on a consistent first four that can build a sort of relationship. But the options they do have all possess qualities in their own right. I think from what I saw of Newcastle this weekend, they operated with. Ethan Fisher was wearing the goalkeeper jersey, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, feel free to. Um, but the majority of what I saw, but operating sort of edge of the box, almost like we did at Seven Oaks. And Ethan Fisher's another one of those, but there's kind of some sort of meteoric rise 
similar to Tyler Reeves sort of rise through the ranks at Northwest Bees and now joining Newcastle where he pushed up to almost being in consideration for a spot in the eight for Sydney. He was in the selection day as well as myself and he's one player that possesses great amounts of power and is a very confident player, very much believes he has the ability and he often delivers. I think uh, one of you mentioned it earlier about Logan Mitchelson learning from Tom Kelly. I think Ethan Fisher will benefit significantly from watching Lewis Harris. For me, they're very similar players in the strengths that they exhibit. And I always was was calling for Ethan Fisher to be utilised as a second pivot in that system with Ollie Crawshaw just in front because they have the wide players in Albie Morris, Sam Smith, Lee Armstrong to, to score plenty of goals. And he's just getting that one-two formula right at the back and they will go on to achieve many good things. And um, really excited to see what they can do this season because they started last season's uh, football really brightly and then petered off slightly. I think they focused more on their WFA Cup run so uh, excited to see. I think I, I tipped Albie Morris to be top goal scorer. So um, I think Sam Smith got seven across the weekend. Ollie Crawshaw got five. So they're all ready underway in the scoring charts. Uh, so interested to see. When I said rotation, I believe the rotation mainly occurs as to which back two they play, as in the options they have at the back, Aaron Guthrie, Lee Armstrong, Ollie Crawshaw can drop in there if you need really need to. So can Sam Smith. The options they have are plentiful at the back, and it's just trying to find the right combinations to work with Ethan Fisher, who is one of their standout players, along with Ollie Crawshaw. And for two players so young to be standing out and already fighting for places in even the senior squad, it just bodes well for the future of not only Newcastle, but England and the sport in general. I think considering how complimentary we are of Leeds Chariots, they finished seventh across game week one. Just above them, West Bromwich Albion Throssels. Um, and I think considering the context and the tone of how enthusiastic we are about Leeds, we have to get, give full credit to Villa Rockets, to Newcastle United, and now West Bromwich Albion Throssels, who all... Um, trumped him in the standings at the conclusion of game week one. Uh, Throssell started with a 1-0 win over championship winners, Nomad Knights, before a 3-0 win over Hull and East Yorkshire, 2-0 win over Nottinghamshire, and it was two consecutive defeats on the Sunday against Teesside and Newcastle United. So you could arguably say that they had a very favourable uh, opening day of the season, playing Nomad Knights, Hull and East Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire, who either got promoted or were battling relegation in last season's campaign. They've strengthened across, I don't know if we've mentioned it, but across the across the uh, off-season, we had 11 transfers in the National League. I don't believe we've ever had more in such a short amount of time. But West Bromwich Albion Thrusters brought in Barris Innell from Manchester United, Al, your thoughts on West Bromwich Albion as a whole and what you think Barris can bring to that side? So I thought they looked very solid this this weekend. Um, it was 
an interesting uh, watch at times. Amy Wharton was superb. Really read the game very well. Um, and uh, particularly against uh, Teesside, uh, definitely broke the play up and stopped Teesside finding that flow in football that I think they're, they're searching for. Um, and I think that was a combination of obviously her abilities, but also that experience that she's now got in the National League and understanding how opposition teams play. Uh, around the rest of the team, uh, Ollie Rock uh, popped up with a couple of goals uh, and was looking good. I think he got a couple of goals. Certainly saw him score one. And in general, as a, as a unit, they look well-organised. Uh, they look like they understand what they're doing and they've got a game plan uh, and will certainly be uh, safe again, I think, as a premiership team. One thing I think us three can comment on directly is John Dixon. And I say this because all three of us were in Geneva recently for the GBG Geneva Cup, where John was one of five members of a European All-Stars outfit, which went on to win the tournament. He was incredibly impressive in that, predominantly occupying as a goalkeeper, but an expansive, almost four-out style goalkeeper. Really interested to see if Throstles, who we know are a defensive unit, they're hard to break down, will feel the acquisition of Barris Innall will aid uh, their decision-making in being more expansive, may leave them vulnerable at the back, but seeing what John gave to that side in, in Switzerland, I can't help but feel he can do a job in attacking phases of play for Throstles. He certainly went roving a fair few times this weekend. A um, uh, number of times I looked up and he was driving back uh, to get back in position past his, the rest of his teammates as he'd uh, found himself as the most advanced player. But I, I certainly think that's, uh, a, again, we're coming back to this modern goalkeeper where we, we very rarely now do we consider, uh, a, certainly at National League level, that a, a goalkeeper would sit in their box and and not necessarily come out and be part of play and you play with three players out on the, the pitch. It's nearly every team has some variation of a goalkeeper that comes out uh, to add to the play, whether it's occasionally in specific circumstances or as just as a general uh, practice uh, to have four players out and, and attacking. All teams seem to do some, some variation of that now. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic uh, that's been created in the National League that gives us some quite end-to-end -end games, some exciting opportunities, some certainly exciting games. And I do wonder whether the slightly higher number of cards that we had this weekend compared to previous uh, weekends is partly down to the lack of space caused by teams coming out with four players. How many yellow cards were awarded across the weekend? Now you're asking, I think 10. Wow. Wow. And with that's with the three red cards as well? Yes. Uh, I can try and look them up for you. Well, Alex does that. Brian, you read my mind because the point I was going to make is exactly that about John Dixon because we, as you said, in Geneva, he was a standout performer for that All-Stars team and I came into this weekend expecting the sort of standards to be met and I commentated on the second half of their game against Hollandish Yorkshire with Chris Gordon. And he was out wide. 
for that, a large portion of that second half. And Barris had moved into the middle, which, and I mentioned this on commentary, sort of caught me off guard. And seeing as that Alex has spoken about it, he did play a goal a bit over the weekend, but so obviously haven't seen. But it's one of those to watch as the season goes on, because a player that could go under the radar. And if you'd have asked me when you did the whole social media polls about under radar players was one of the uh, options after Geneva, I'd have changed mine to John Dixon. That's where I would go with mine because the thing that has to be mentioned as well is they did look good in a favourable weekend, fixture-wise if you want to put it that way. Their 1-0 win against Nomad Knights, they didn't score their goal. It was a very unfortunate 38th minute own goal by young Bobby Allen. So they did struggle to break down Nomad. I think we'll see going forward just how well Throttles uh, adapt with this new kind of approach. Was that adaptation of shifting players into certain positions a result of the Lucas Christa red card? No, I believe the Lucas Christa red card was the final game of the day on the Sunday. And that's really interesting. But I, I really hope West Brom Throttles have that bravery to go out and really attack games. And I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing for you, Greg, because if they listen to this podcast and take the advice, their next game is against Seven Oaks. So um, no, really interested to see they have a great side, a solid side. Oliver Rock will want to get a number of goals uh, on the charts, was was proficient and within the championship Prior to his transfer over to Throttles, Lucas Christa, obviously a very solid, competent central player. I want to echo absolutely what Alex said in complimenting and giving full praise to Amy Wharton. Her name was everywhere in this in the team of the weekend competition polls and the unsung hero of the weekend, a new uh, award that we've introduced to kind of shine a light on players uh, that are often overlooked in the team of the weekend. We're really keen to try and break away from team of the weekend or general awards being uh, a popularity contest. And we're hoping the introduction of streams and commentary helps shine a light on players who deserve full credit for their ability and their performances. Amy Water, most certainly one of them. Uh, so really excited, really excited to see what they can do. We now progress on to Leeds Chariots, and I, I, I repeat myself with the point that the teams that finished above them deserve the credit they they deserve because all three of us, I think, have Leeds Chariots very high in our predictions for the wider standings. Uh, one thing I will mention before passing it over to you two is them transfers have been so key to this shift in momentum and expectation not only did they bring Lewis Harris, uh, a league winner with West Bromwich Albion, into their side, they've also acquired Jack Maxwell from Northern Thunder, who we know has quality. We know has goals in him. 
One player that didn't feature across the weekend, another to, to, to note as well, is Benjamin Robertson, who's recently transferred from Leeds Dynamos. And whilst his appearances and availability may be infrequent due to him uh, seeking uh, opportunities in further education and doing his due diligence to make sure that he picks the right step, next step with regards to his education, maybe uh, may feature for Leeds Charity across this season. So with the the central pivot of Lewis Harris and Dan uh, Rigby with the plethora of wide players they have in Jack Britton, Harrison Taylor, uh, Jack Maxwell and Benjamin Robertson. I can't help but think that they will challenge the very top teams in the league. Correct me if I'm wrong, Al. I don't remember seeing Jack Britton either this weekend, especially on the Sunday. Feel free, if he was there, I do apologise. I think I made that observation. There was another play they were missing on the Sunday as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, feel free to. With Leeds, we all had big up this expectation. Similarly to Teesside with the signing of Ed, there was a big question mark about where would they play Lewis and Dan? Would they play them together in the middle? Would Lewis go out wide and Dan in the middle? Or would vice versa, would Dan go out wide where he likes to play as well? It's going to be one of those partnerships to watch as the season develops. The opening weekend showed glimpses of promise and of absolute quality. Dan Rigby was outstanding this weekend. For me, I'd have had him in my team at the weekend, hands down. He was unbelievable. Another team that we did play against this weekend. For me, they are in the top four teams I have this season. I make it West Brom, Aspire, Teesside and Leeds are my top four. Where Teesside and Leeds swap and I don't know, who knows. But Dan Rigby was excellent. But we also saw, especially in our game against them, the growing pains that happened with having two players that like to dominate the ball in the middle. So I'd love to say that in the two-all draw, we created lovely two goals. The two goals did come from defensive mix-ups between Lewis and Dan. Uh, just, to, just to say, I've looked up the system that I can look up stuff on and it appears Jack was there on the Saturday, but I don't know about Sunday yet. Um, I shall carry on to look. But uh, f- for me, the Leeds approach to the game, um, uh, which is very much, let's go and score more goals than you do. Um, a, I like watching. It's great to watch. B, when I was coaching, I liked playing against because it gave uh, a, a big open game and gave you opportunities to do uh, do more. But I do think that the I was so I was hugely impressed with them, and I think that their ability to cut sides open and to dynamically change the shape of the game very quickly with the players that they now have um, will lead them to be, to be third in the league. Is my prediction. And that's the thing. I can only take the results on face value not being there. And on paper, you've got an opening 3-1 win over Newcastle United before a 2-2 draw with Seven Oaks, which Greg just referenced. Only a 1-0 win over Hull and East Yorkshire. And considering some of the defeats that Hull and East Yorkshire faced across game week one, um, I probably was expecting a little bit more. And then that close 1-0 defeat to West Bromwich Albion so no, I just we're all so excited to see where the Leeds Chariots team can go 
and I can't help but feel, and they will probably disagree with this point, that Dan Rigby and Lewis Harris's omission from the World Cup squad will only help them in the long run because across uh, a number of Leeds Chariots games last season, certainly how I viewed it was Dan Rigby was very conflicted in terms of how he approached a game, the the tactics that he adopts and the techniques that he tries. I can't help but feel he was looking over his shoulder to see if certain England representatives were there or watching and it, it, it... affected his game and affected his confidence. You two have absolutely raved about Dan from this weekend. And I'm sure you will echo this, Greg, in you nominating him for your team of the weekend. Full credit to Dan, who since his admission and uh, him dropping down to the England development squad has gone from strength to strength. And it's the Dan Rigby of old. Add Jack Maxwell and Lewis Harris to that mix. There is no ceiling for Leeds Chariots. They are a team, yeah, that has immense potential. Your point about credit to Dan for since he's dropped out of the England team squad and missing out on his spot in the squad for Sydney was a point I was also going to make for Dylan Kelso from West Brom. Because since he found out he'd lost his spot right at the end, having been in the squad for a large majority of the preparation, has been absolutely outstanding. So those two players have not let their heads drop. They've almost gone with the, right, I'm going to prove that you should have taken me and I should still be on the plane. Do you know who did that? Tyler Reeve. Last year, you'll remember this, Greg, um, the England development team was formed and travelled to Belfast to compete, compete in a developmental home nations tournament. Tyler was overlooked for that tournament. Um, for a number of other players. And I remember having a conversation with him and his dad and they were absolutely gutted. But, and this is the big but, and I implore any player that receives bad news with regards to selection or team choice to adopt is, Tyler said, I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to show them what they're missing and we have the, the we have the ability to have uh, time go by and have the proper information and the resulting performances results. Tyler is now in the World Cup squad, heading to Sydney in a couple of weeks' time, and we've all all three of us have said how highly we regard him as one of the best players in this country, if not the world. And if Dylan, if Lewis, if Dan can take that same mindset. They will be in the Euro squad in two years' time or whenever the Euros is projected to take place because Ed, Chris, John, um, they're all within probably the twilight of their careers Um, and we're going to see this next generation come through the ranks now and they're going to have to be the torchbearers. I would give as much as it pains me because it was a... Harley Gaming against Leeds was... Back and forth. Um, as I said, they kind of did gift us two goals through defensive mishaps. We took the lead with two and a half minutes left on the clock. And Dan scored an absolute worldie. 
to equalise with about a minute left. I brought Harry back to defend a set ball, which Carl was taking. The ball got flicked to the Dan. He went all the way around the outside. Couldn't have connected with it any better. Put it right in the corner. I had no chance. Harry, I don't think any keeper had any chance. It was one of those where you say, you just hold your hand up and go, that is a, a quality finish. For me, yeah, like I said, Dan would have been in my team of the weekend. Uh, he just showed his quality. And I think, as you say, this was the last football before the World Cup. If, if there are any, and I hope not, but if there are any lacklustre performances from individual players in Sydney, some players, some people in the community maybe look back at this footage and go, well, why weren't they on the plane given what they've done? Obviously, I hope every England player going to Sydney plays to their highest potential they bring the World Cup back. That's always a dangerous thing with regards to power chair World Cup selection. It, to Logistically speaking, um, it must be an absolute nightmare to organise transport for eight players plus to go from uh, London to Sydney or anywhere else in the world. So selection has to be made weeks, if not months, prior to them actually going. And we always knew, I think the, the World Cup squad was officially announced uh, late June, months ago. And we knew that our 23-24 campaign would kick off prior to them going to Sydney. But that was always going to be a factor that players could, knowing that the shackles are off, they're not heading to Sydney, can just get back to playing the football that got them into the England squad in the first place. And... We, we, I, I hope that our eight players absolutely excel and exceed all expectation and bring home the trophy. If they don't and they're unfortunate in their results and the outcome of the whole competition, that's the beauty of the English game now. We have two, three, four levels underneath the England senior team all fighting for one of those eight spots. And I, I, I do predict that come the 2025 uh, Nations Cup, we will see a very different looking England team. It's one of those, it's always a, a what if in football. What if you've done this? What if you've done that? It just remains to be seen. Right, gentlemen, let's move on to the, towards the bottom of the table, I would suppose, I suppose and, and describe it in that way. Um, Newcomers into the, the Premiership, uh, Nomad Knights and Hull and East Riding uh, got off to a, a baptism of fire, I would describe it as. I think it was a reality check for them. I think we have to put some context on that, that any teams that come up from the Championship by default are typically the ones that we consider or will consider to be favourites for relegation. And we're seeing that divide in the table. You've got West Brom Aspire, Villa, Teesside, Newcastle, West Bromwich Albion Throstles, Leeds Charity to seven. And then I think you're going to see a divide, unfortunately for you and Seven Oaks, Greg, but you can prove me wrong. But in that then bottom five teams, you've got United, Nottinghamshire, Nomad Knights, Seven Oaks and Hull and East Yorkshire. The relegation battle between them 
will be really interesting to see. I think Seven Oaks have too much quality to be drawn into that in the across the five weekends. I think Nomad Knights will have a lot to prove. They have a lot of quality within their team. But between Hull and East Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, Manchester United, um, you will see a very interesting battle at the bottom of the table. Uh, Manchester United have strengthened. They've brought in Kieran Burns from Teesside and Sam Taylor back to the club from St. George's Knights. They had a tough weekend, um, but they got points on the board, which is the really important factor against a relegation rival in Nottinghamshire. I think we ha- if we can just go back just one second to the 21-22 campaign and consider Nottinghamshire, they finished fourth in the league and they were on at one point to finish third. Last season, they were unfortunately without one of their key players in Adam Langley. Uh, if they are able to get him back fit and healthy, and that's the ultimate priority, football is irrelevant when it comes to a player's health. Nottinghamshire, I think, will climb the ranks and climb the table. They've strengthened with the acquisition of Matty Harrison from Northern Thunder, which is really interesting. I'm finding, I think Hull and East Yorkshire had intentions to strengthen across the summer and were were unable to bring anyone in. It will be very tight at the bottom because any one of them, if they can just start playing their football, can avoid relegation. Uh, As you mentioned, Adam, I think, as far as I know, it's looking unlikely he's going to be able to return this season. Um, in terms of whether or not we're worried about it, just to put people's minds to rest, his health is absolutely fine. It's a slightly different scenario for why he's missing um, uh, and isn't going to, probably not going to be here for the uh, season. However, um, I have to say, having spoken to uh, a couple of coaches out of those teams, they're very much looking around at each other and consider... Uh, those matches to be the ones that are crucial to define in their seasons. Um, and like you said, I think think we've probably got to a point now where we've got three mini divisions within uh, the Premiership in terms of what people are looking to achieve uh, for their as a, as a club and as a team uh, from the season. Whether they're exactly 4-4-4 four, four and four, or whether they're 3-6 uh, and 3 and what's three, six and 3 or a three, five, and four, or a, a I'm going to say I'm going to think it's going to be typically it's going to be a two with a Spire and West Brom battling for that ultimate Premiership crown, and then between third and seventh, I think it's up for anyone, and then you'll or third and eighth maybe, and then you've got ninth downwards. So it'll be really interesting. You're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head that we'll see a number of individual and uh, collections of teams um, battling for different uh, things across the season. So do you, does any of you two, either of you two want to be brave and predict the entire league table uh, finishes from now, having seen the first weekend? I don't think I will because I, I gave my predictions as in what Greg mentioned. I think we had a runner, a supposedly fun interactive poll on Facebook where people could predict their premiership winners, runners-up, team to watch, player to watch, etc. And 
and I was I was jumped on by a number of Aspire players following my prediction for West Bromwich Albion to to lift the crown. But I think we've just got to take it and enjoy it because there's going to be so many key battles. And once the distraction of the World Cup is out the way with, there is only the league. And You do sound like you've got some unresolved issues over that post, right? Do we, do we need to have a group hug at some point and... and- it's okay, right? I'm so glad. It's okay. I'm so glad you mentioned that, boys, because I do. It has really troubled me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But it's I, 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 obviously West Brom Aspire will both have very strong title aspirations, so they will go f- right down to the end. But there's absolutely no reason why a Teesside, why a Newcastle, why a Leeds can't be in that mix. I really, truly believe that if they can get their formulas and tactics right. Yeah, I make obviously West Brom and Aspire your favourites for going for what I think for me lead to choose just, a winner, Greg. Stop sitting on the fence. Do I really want to end up like you, still bitter about a post you made? I'm Three dragging everyone down with me. <laughs> um, I'll put my mind, I will put my neck on the line, and I will say Aspire. They're the team I said at the, at the beginning of, and I believe they still win out. Going back to the bottom side, of course, I've got to count myself, ourselves in at the minute. Um, when you first come up, you're, obviously your main priority is, can we stay up? You don't want to get too lofty in your ambitions. Your first priority is staying in the league. Failing that, you want to take as many lessons as you can from the games that you play at the higher level to help develop yourselves and yourself as yourself as a team for when you go back down to the championship to try and then get back up and provide a better chance of staying up if you get back up in your life. But I think the teams will take the first weekend as a a lesson and as to where the levels are. And now we have three months of solid training between now and the next weekend. We will see I think varied improvements from all teams come December. I agree. And on the topic of Seven Oaks, I mentioned it a short while ago. I think they've got the quality. It's just the the addition of James Mason means that they are stronger than they they finished the 22-23 campaign. So I think they will certainly have enough to avoid the relegation. Just for context, for all of those that don't know, the bottom two teams of the Premiership division are automatically relegated to the Championship. Whoever finishes 10th in the 12-team division will finish whoever finishes 3rd uh, in the Championship in a one-off playoff game, which all, normally always excites and is already already such an intriguing battle. So, yeah, really interested. So just to be clear, Greg, you're going to Spire. Ryan, you've already picked West Brom and you're staying with West Brom? I am. I've learned the hard way, don't get, don't bet against John Boulding. So I'm, I too am going with Aspire. I think they're, uh, uh, despite West Brom looking sensational, uh, I think the one team that can beat them uh, will be Aspire with John Boulding in that middle. Uh, unlike you two, I am being quite brave and I've written out an entire league table, but I'm not going to share it with you now. Well, I would have probably given it a go, to be fair. But uh, I'll, do, I'll do my top five. 
I'm happy no, to do my top do, five. Do the whole do the whole thing, Alex. Let's just let's play it out because I think we all have a very similar viewpoint. It's already a contentious one two. Um, I already know that Leeds will be your third team. So you've already predicted Aspire. You've gone West Brom runners up. You absolutely love Leeds. You've got then Teesside underneath. Uh, yes, correct. Yep. Newcastle. Yes. Thrussels. No. Villa. 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 I've got Villa in his sixth. Trussels. They're good at getting results. They are a tough team to beat and they are good at getting results. Uh, then Throstles, yes. Seven Oaks. Yes. Phew. Nomad Knights. Nope. Nottinghamshire? Yes. Nomad Knights. Yes. Manchester United. Yes. Alan East Yorkshire. Yes. And apologies yeah. to those teams. I'm hoping you prove me wrong. And that's what, I, that's what I said to the Aspire contingent that jumped on me. I said, prove me wrong. I have no affiliations. I want everyone to exceed. And there's no reason why uh, them teams that you've predicted to be down uh, the lower parts of the table, I think we would have very similar predictions bar a few uh, shifts in the middle. Um, but just can't wait to see uh, the remainder, remaining fixtures in the National League. Unfortunately, as mentioned, we have to wait till December now for the return. But with a nice World Cup in between, it will absolutely fly past. Two things. One, Alex, did you realise Ryan got jumped on by the Aspire players? I've really not heard him mention it a lot this uh, this podcast. <laughs> really strong. Total news there. to me, Greg. Total news to me. Breaking news for everyone listening to that. If you didn't know, somehow. Uh, two, I suppose, from our point of view, um, I'd say, well, seven oaks this weekend. Um, on paper, you look at the fixtures we had, and we had Aspire, Leeds, and West Brom, and then Villa, who were... So, three of, I think, all of our top four, straight away. Um, we had various issues. So, although we've got a squad of five for the first time in a while this season... Um, Five players available. We only had one available. Uh, one was unavailable, James, due to suspension. The first game, Aspire. We had five against Leeds and got the two-all draw. And then, unfortunately, Harry uh, fell ill Saturday night and had to go home Sunday morning. So we we're back down to just the four. Uh, four games with West Brom and Villa. Collectively, as a group, we weren't good enough. We really felt we made mistakes and let ourselves down massively. There were periods where we had some possession and passing play, but we look back at the draw against Leeds, arguably one of those that we'll look back and go, that's probably a good point. Could We could have held on, but it, like I said, it was a wonder strike from Dan Rigby to get them back into it. But we now have three months of analysis and training to look at ourselves and say that that wasn't good enough. And obviously we had no Adam this weekend. We had no manager at all. So, yeah, it wasn't good enough by our standards, by anyone's standards. But we had opportunities now to develop and get back into the season. Uh, and totally understand your mitigations and uh, etc. The other thing I would say is that every single season for the last three or four seasons, at least one or two teams have surprised as the season's gone on. So although I, I've made pr predictions and we've kind of agreed roughly on on uh, 
where teams are going to be battling uh, this year. I, I wouldn't wouldn't want to say that this is uh, a set in stone or b we're not expecting to be surprised at some point because I'm sure we will be. This is something we said at the end of the Villa game or the last game on Sunday. This first weekend doesn't define the rest of the season at all. It's cliche in football. Every team will have a, if you're in the, the running game, you can guarantee your side will have a bad run of form at some point. They'll have a patch in the season. It's very rare that any team goes the entire length of the season without having a downturn in form. Similarly, in our game, you're very rarely likely to see a team that has five outstanding weekends. There will be a weekend where they will struggle. Even West Brom had one or two last season where they struggled, and it ultimately cost them the title. Absolutely that. It defined their season. And I will make a prediction that I don't think the league will be won uh, in them. And typically of years gone by, the league was won in them two fixtures between Aspire and West Brom. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we've we've branched away from that expectation that no teams are are able to take points off the top teams. Anyone on their day can take points off anyone else. And that is so exciting. We, we've raved about the pack of teams between third and seventh. There's no re- reason on their day that they can't take points off West Brom, off Aspire. And likewise, below that, why, why the relegation battlers can't take points off the middle of the pack teams. And it will be almost a domino effect. So no, I think that serves as a excellent recap and review of game week one of the PTC Therapeutics Premiership. Uh, this coming weekend, we are excited to announce that it is the return of the championship division which will also be held at the Lee Westwood Sports Centre. And should our scheduling allow, myself and Alex will gather next week to review the outcomes, performances and cast our eyes forward to the season ahead in the championship. But for me, gentlemen, that's a good recap. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for joining. Much appreciated. Uh, a very interesting chat and sorry we've gone on quite as long as we have done. Um <laughs> We'll try and make our podcast a bit snappy in the future. But I I think we're, we're happy with saying that after the first weekend, there's a lot to talk about, certainly yeah. going forward. We love this game. That's why we talk about it so much. We certainly do. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Alex. See you all soon.